What's up, y'all? I'm Dr. Craig Walid, your host here on the Prison to Promise podcast, where I explore strategies formerly incarcerated people use to build a life of promise and avoid a return to prison. On today's episode, I'm joined by a freedom fighter named Patrice Sultan. She is an attorney committed to smarter safety solutions. Please join Patrice and me as she talks about law, policy reform, and criminal justice matters. As always, you don't want to miss this rich conversation, so let's go. So I'm excited to be on the pod. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time out of your day to uh, be on this podcast with me. And so uh, just to jump right in, I'm going to invite you to tell the listeners who you are. Okay. I'm Patrice Sultan. I'm the founder and executive justice lab in Washington, D.C. And, and DC justice yeah, DC Justice Lab is a policy organization here in the District of Columbia focused on the District of Columbia, and we really set our sights on big, bold changes to the criminal legal system here. Everything from uh, changes officers have to rewriting the DC criminal code and getting that through our local council to um, trying to end torture in our jails in the form of solitary confinement and food injustice. And it's been a really uh, wonderful experience building the organization and seeing it grow and seeing some of these changes start to take root in the first two years. Wow. Thanks for sharing that information about what you do and who you are. Um, You know, do you have any um, history of... uh, being impacted directly by the justice system. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that. When we had our Unlock the Box national convening this summer, I remember who were survivors of solitary talking about how they often are asked to tell their stories and be vulnerable in that way. And other people um, from grass tops organizations don't usually reciprocate and tell their story. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, that's a really powerful point. And also something that I don't know that I'm ready to do. Like, I don't know Mm -hmm. if I'm ready to talk about, you know, things other than my profession, which I talk about often. I was a criminal defense attorney here for nearly 10 years before I moved into policy work. And it's easy for me to reflect on my cases Mm -hmm. and that sort of, um, you know, secondhand or vicarious experience I've had. But I think it's hard to identify anyone who's Black in America who hasn't been impacted by our system of punishment by gun violence, by the horrors that come along with taking such a wrongheaded approach Mm -hmm. to keeping people safe. And so I certainly, you know, in my own personal life, count myself among those who have had firsthand experience, but I don't identify as someone who is um, justice impacted in the same way that someone who has experienced, you know, firsthand trauma of being a long period of time or losing an immediate family member, such as a spouse or parent, um, mm-hmm. might identify. Wow, dope! That's that's a great um, p- 
piece you just shared there, you know, but what really grabs me is you said, you know, it's almost impossible for anyone who's black in America not to be able to identify with this, uh, I guess, phenomenon, for lack of a better term, of, you know, police violence or police interaction, but not impact it directly. And I asked that question because um, folks would often want to know, then, you know, like, what drives you to do this work? Because a large percentage of people that do this work on some level have uh, been directly impacted. I really got interested in criminal defense when I was in law school and started representing people in misdemeanor cases mm -hmm. and realized that this was singularly the most important civil rights issue, the most important racial justice issue for my generation. I mean, you walk into... Mm -hmm. DC Superior Court, you would think that white people don't commit crimes at all. I mean, when I would have interns at my law office, I would kind of pay attention to my watch and see, does it take 10 minutes? Does it take 15 minutes? Does it take 20 minutes for them to make the observation that this looks a lot like slavery to them? And I had that experience as a student and really wanted to devote my career to helping people who found themselves in that circumstance. But I also really enjoyed the work. I really liked those tasks associated with representing someone in criminal court, which included teaching the client about the law, teaching the jury about how to understand the evidence in the case, teaching the judge about how to interpret the law um, and investigating criminal mm -hmm. cases, which is really an interesting aspect on the defense side that prosecutors don't experience. Uh, and so that sort of was why I ended up building a practice around criminal defense and civil rights litigation and I found myself really just dabbling in policy work. Mm -hmm. I felt like it was unfair that in civil cases, the goal was always to put the person back in the position they would have been in had the harm never occurred. And there's no such goal in criminal cases. And so I tried to make that my goal and say, you know, if this person was harmed by the police, I need to learn how to sue the police. If this person was affected by a law that was unfair, I need to learn how to change the laws. And so I was sort of dabbling in changing the laws and had an opportunity to come out of my practice and work on rewriting all of the criminal laws, the substantive offenses and penalties in um, DC's criminal code. And that's what really moved me into policy work full time. And after completing the, the draft of that bill, I decided to build DC Justice Lab and try to rewrite all of the laws. So that's where we are. <laughs> Wow, that's a big undertaking as well, I'm thinking, rewriting all these laws. It was a big project. Yeah. And what yes. I hear from and you close also... To the first council vote. No, go right ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, it's just top of mind. The first council vote on that bill is today. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. What's the prognosis for that, you think? It, the, I'm feeling very optimistic that DC is going to be, you know, leading the way for the rest of the country to start looking at rewriting their criminal codes. The yeah. last time there was a big wave like this was in the 60s and 70s when 29 states updated to a model penal code that the American Law Institute wrote. And I think that 2022 is going to mark the start of, of people looking at what DC did and, and revising their codes based on what happened here. That would be great if the rest of the country would start following suit then, you know, especially here where I'm located in the South. The South seems to be very uh, resistant to change when it comes to criminal codes and running their prisons, etc. 
I agree. Yeah, there are different challenges in different places. It was surprising to me that in Washington, D.C., where we don't have, you know, a bicameral legislature, we don't have a bipartisan legislature, we have people who have a lot of the same values on paper, it still is extremely difficult to change laws in our criminal legal system. It's hard for people to step forward and be out front and introduce things that change the way we punish. And that inaction and intransigence has been almost as frustrating as some of the opposition that I see in the Southern states. Hmm. Uh, but I am sometimes, you know, reminded by bills coming out of the South that things could be worse. We could be, you know, not just stuck in the mud, but, you know, running full speed in the wrong direction as we've seen happening, you know, Absolutely. even in this modern era. It's amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think in part we see these types of, or this type of resistance to changing the way people who are, are convicted of crimes are treated is because of a probably just, I think maybe just people's humanity gets lost by the systems that be once they're charged with a crime. It's as though they no longer count once they're charged with a crime. And I think this, this lack of um, humane treatment and this lack of, uh, identifying the person as a person instead of a convict or an inmate or, you know, something other than somebody's brother, mother, sister, or family member. Um, I think it creates room to um, continue to be harsh and not make attempts to to uh, help people heal and find a rightful place in the community. I think it happens even before people are charged. I think it happens at the moment of suspicion. There is a belief about dangerousness mm. of Black people to white people. And the best example I can think of in our city in recent years is what happened on January 6th of last year. I mean, this is a situation where we knew people were dangerous individually, dangerous in groups, armed, you know, holding intentions to cause extreme harm. And there was no need in our police department's view to go get search warrants for their cars and hotel rooms. There was no need to stop them before they left town. And so this assessment of who's dangerous, who's a risk of flight, you know, yeah. starts before the charging decision even happens, I think. Wow. Yeah. And I, I think you hit it right on the nose. I think you're right. And so it makes me reflect back even further, you know, to like the origins of people's life, where they come from, what groups they belong to. And as you um, pointed out, you know, white folks versus black folks, you know, black folks oftentimes are just automatically suspicious of being criminals or having ill intent. Um, I was in the store the other day talking to a brother, dark skinned brother, beard, big nappy afro, you know, and he was saying how um, he hates the way people look at him and treat him as though he's suspicious of something, you know, he said they have no idea who I am. As a matter of fact, I graduated from Morehouse, um, or no, Howard. He graduated from Howard University. He said I was going to be a lawyer, but, you know, life happened and kids, but I graduated. I'm professional, but, you know, people automatically think I'm dangerous. And then, you know, we continue to talk. And I said, yeah, and it seems like the taller we are, the more hair we have, the darker we are. It seems we're even at greater suspicion, and, you know, and he said, boy, don't I know. 
you know, because he's a tall, dark-skinned, big brother, you know, with bushy face, with beautiful soul. So what I'm getting at is it's unfortunate that we continue to be um, suspect in many cases when we're not. And I think that that fuels a lot of the, the mistreatment that we get. And um, I think it also fuels the reason why there is um, an overrepresentation of black and brown people in state and federal prisons. Agreed. So if you would, I, folks don't know, and I think you do remember, you and I met at the convening in Baltimore, was it? It was near Baltimore, <laughs> but yeah, near Maryland. Yeah. Right, it was Maryland, right, exactly. And, you know, maybe folks don't know, but we were there convening groups who were fighting in solitary confinement in the nation. And so can you talk a little bit about your work with solitary confinement resistance? Yes. So Washington, D.C. doesn't have its own prison. It has its own jails that are supposed to um, care for people who are being held pretrial or who are serving short sentences for misdemeanors. The stay in our jails is over a year. And the conditions in our jails have been abysmal long before the people who were arrested in connection with the insurrection at the Capitol began making it known globally how badly people are being treated there. Before we even had a pandemic, the D.C. Department of Corrections was relying on solitary confinement nearly three times as often as the national average. And as soon as the pandemic started, they used that as a justification to lock down all 1,500 people there for nearly 500 days. Everyone in the jail was in their cells for 22 to 23 hours per day. And when you think about how incredibly violent an approach like that is, I think most people would say they don't want that kind of treatment happening in their names, but it's mm -hmm. so hidden. And a big part wow. of our work um, here in DC was just making known what's happening behind the walls mm -hmm. in DC, that you could walk to our jail from you know the seat of power <laughs> in right. of the United States. And most people have no idea that it's entirely black, that it's that they're using solitary confinement the way they are, that they're giving people food that's completely inedible, that people don't get to go outside very often, that we've never had meaningful visitation with friends and family for people who live in our jails. And this is all before they're shipped thousands of miles away to the Bureau of Prisons. Mm. It is a unique form of exile that people in Washington, D.C. experience because of the way our um, jails are structured and the way our legal system that determines which facilities people will um, reside in is structured. And so I'm, I'm hoping that we've been doing a good job of shedding a light on how incredibly inhumane it is to be um, to be actually committed to the Department of Corrections here in DC. It's no small thing. And we shouldn't be throwing around numbers like 25 years or even five days without being thoughtful about what that actually means in human terms. Yeah, yeah. And what does that mean in human terms? I mean, like I have my perspective, but what do you think that means in human terms? You know, I always tried to get my students to really visualize minute to minute what is being asked of their clients? And one of the things that I used to 
train young attorneys and law students on is sentencing and how you argue for sentencing. When everything goes wrong, you find yourself there. How do you make the best argument possible? And the, the first lesson there was always probation is not a win. And the way I would teach that is to ask them to walk through minute by minute, what are each of these conditions that we're talking about? Because we write things like drug testing on a piece of paper and we think, oh, that's no big deal. At least this person's not in a cage. But what it is that we're asking the person to do, we're asking the person to disregard any other obligations they have to their family, to their workplace, to figure out how to get the money to come down to where the drug testing occurs in D.C., to go into a small room and undress in front of a stranger mm -hmm. and give a urine sample in front of a complete stranger every single week. Mm. Right. And mm. it is not normal <laughs> that we have made that a win in a lot of people's minds that anything short of incarceration is a win because yeah. incarceration has gotten that violent. Mm. Um, and so rethinking that I think is, is important for everyone to do, not just at the pretrial stage, as you see a lot of attention there, mm -hmm. but, um, but yeah, when we, when we talk about fashioning a sentence, it's, it yeah. shouldn't just be about, you know, picking a round number. It should be thoughtful. Yeah. 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 And yeah, thanks for that. And when, when I listen to you say that I'm thinking about, again, uh, the humanity of people, how inhumane is this system of, of incarceration, jail, prison, parole, probation, which ultimately is altogether mass incarceration, be you on the streets, under supervision, or behind the wall, you know, and a term you used a couple of times in describing um, these prisons and jails is violent, you know, and so solitary confinement, violent impact, uh, coming into uh, contact with the criminal legal system in booking or in jail or in prison or parole, probation is all um, violent, I believe, just as you had mentioned. And can you maybe talk just a little bit about that violence, what it looks like, you know, because oftentimes people think, oh, it's a, a ship, somebody's going to get stabbed with a with a shank or whatever, somebody's going to get beat over the head by the guards. But I think the violence goes deeper than that. Yeah, I am intentional about using the phrase state violence often because there is this false narrative that people who are in favor of criminal justice reform and changing the way that we punish are less concerned than others about community violence, mm -hmm. that we are just proponents of of you know, kindness and leniency without regard to the realities of the uh, the risk and the danger that's posed to people in the community when they are subject to community violence. And what I learned um, early on that I found so transformative is that, you know, when you over rely on state violence, you breed more community violence. And we've known for decades that that is the case. And it's the case in every other realm of human life. We know that you could overpunish a child. We know that you could overpunish a student as a teacher. Mm -hmm. And we should understand that you can overpunish a neighborhood when you strip everybody out of that community and subject them to the kinds of conditions of incarceration that we have. 
you lead to more crime, more violence, more harm to the community. And I like to emphasize the fact that the point of us fighting for reduction in state violence is that we want to see less violence in our communities too. Mm-hmm. And it just frustrates me in a place like Washington, D.C., when people act like they can't conceptualize what would that look like. And the reason I say it's hard for me here is we've already just about abolished prisons and police for the white people who live in this city. You don't have to look that far to imagine what would it look like without police, without jails. We've already done that. Yeah. For a lot of people who live so here. So many communities, yeah. And if you give Black people the same opportunities, the same access, the same resources that you've given to the people who live in certain pockets of Northwest, we would all be in the same position. And anyone who refuses to accept that is grounding their belief system in a fundamental bias against Black people, that they are inherently dangerous, that they are inherently wrongheaded, that they are inherently harboring ill intent. And I don't buy that. And I'm going to refuse to accept that. And I'm going to always push back on anyone suggesting that we can't have what all of these other communities have been allowed to have. We can have more freedom and more safety at the same time. It is not mutually exclusive and it's not fair that people always pretend that it is. Oh, right on, sis. I'm almost in tears listening to you say this. You know, you are definitely a freedom fighter and we need more freedom fighters like you. You know, in this thing that you just described uh, of bias and favoritism, you and I know it's rampant across the country and maybe even pretty much across the globe where blackness has always been criminalized and debased, you know. So, wow. So. If I could switch gears just a little bit. um, Yeah. And ask you. um, To maybe think about what would you tell, say a young black girl or boy for that matter, who is contemplating entering into the field of being a lawyer or a politician or something to that degree, or just following in your footsteps, what would you share with them? I love being an attorney. I didn't know that I would love it when I decided to go to law school it Mm -hmm. seemed like a responsible thing to do a versatile degree to have and I really enjoy it I think I spent you know a lot of learning about the problems that exist and law school is a place that I was able to really focus on solutions Mm -hmm. and how do you make the change that you know is supposed to happen Mm -hmm. and there is something really powerful about having a set of tools not only to be able to fight on someone's behalf but just to teach someone how things work Mm -hmm. and now that I'm you know, this many years into my career, that is the through line that I've been able to identify between each of my experiences is teaching. Mm. Every single aspect of lawyering that I've loved so much is really about teaching. And now that I'm doing policy work, it's no different. We are teaching the community how laws work, where the levers of power exist and how to move them. We are teaching decision makers what the community actually needs, what they support, what practices make sense, what will actually fix the harm that they're trying to to heal. And I love that. I love, 
you know, making things that are complicated, understandable to other people. I love seeing what people do with that information when they have minds that are, you know, even more, you know, intelligent than my own, you know, it's, yeah. it's amazing what happens when you share information. And so I see lawyering um, and movement lawyering that way. And I welcome anyone who has a passion for, for those things to, to join the profession. I, I think it's been a wonderful Oh, wow. That's dope. And two things I'm, I'm walking away from right now, just thinking about, and one is that, um, you know, when people know better, they can do better. You know, and I think, you know, a lot of old black mamas and grandmamas would say that, you know, if you know better, you need to do better, you know? Yes. And um, what was the other piece I was thinking about? Yeah. You know, you talked about being in a position where you can help drive change you can help find solutions. And it just reminds me of a young uh, Puerto Rican sister I met maybe 10 years ago who was um, entering into lawyer lawyering. And uh, one of her things was, no, actually, I think she worked for the DA when she was a, a young lawyer, but she said what drove her to do the work was to try to implement change, find solutions. And she said the only way to do that, though, was to infiltrate the systems you know, work from within those very same systems and try to do that change. And it made me think of the the book, uh, The Spook Who Sat By The Door. You know, I'm not mm. sure if you're familiar with that book. Um, yeah, it is it is a point of view that I've heard many times. Um, I can't say that I share it. I think yeah. we know enough about the foundation upon which the system is built to understand that it's rotten to its core. Absolutely. I've seen many people who I know to be good people um, um, try that route and recognize that even if you have the best of intentions, you mm -hmm. will not have the best information to be able to dole out fairness the way you think you'd be able to. The system is so adversarial by nature mm -hmm. that the person who is in the position of a prosecutor will never know enough about the victim in a case, enough about the accused in a case to be able to fairly assess what mm -hmm. the right outcome is. There are so many instances in which even the facts of what transpired are wrong, right? Yeah. Even their opinion about guilt versus innocence is wrong. Mm -hmm. That to imagine or to expect that they would be able to somehow know what is a fair and just outcome, what is going to be rehabilitative without having that information shared with them yeah. is an impossible task. And yeah. we are not as defenders in a position to share any of that information because it could always be weaponized against our clients and that's just the way the system is set up and so when we see these restorative justice options emerging where we say look give the people who are the survivors of the harm more of a voice in what's supposed to happen i think that that is a way that um lawyers can really play that kind of an inner system role um but being the person who meets out punishment and meets out charges, I think is really difficult to do fairly. Um, they just don't have 
the information they need to be fair, even when they want to be fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could dig it. And I agree with you there. That's, that's a perspective I didn't fully take in, but I, I see it clearly as you talk about it. You know, and as you mentioned, I think in part that information is not probably f fully available because as you, you pointed out, the system is so adversarial. And so it's just this system where we got to get them, we got to punish them, you know, almost by any means necessary. But I also like that, you know, you mentioned, you know, these uh, potentially, uh, well, considering what what could be rehabilitative and thinking about restorative approaches to, um, I guess, making up for the harm or addressing the harm. And it seems like restorative processes or practices are being slowly adopted um, in courthouses across the country, but it seems also not to be happening enough. And so more people continue to be harmed by the, not just by the instant offense, but also many times just by the sentencing or the lack of restorative approaches. And so, you know, as we get ready to close out, um, I want to know if you could just maybe talk a little more about the importance of restorative practices when, when it comes to dealing with folks who are impacted by the criminal legal system. I think restorative justice is an approach that not only gives victims a stronger voice in terms of what outcomes should be, but it also is an opportunity to afford um, a mechanism for accountability for the person who is accused or convicted of causing harm. Mm -hmm. We are so punitive mm -hmm. that I often found myself as a defender, not saying to a client, hey, what you did was really wrong. You know, <laughs> this is something that you should take accountability for. I was walking into courtrooms and jailhouses saying nobody should be treated this way. What in the world? Like, and you put, you put on this fighting stance immediately and there is no discussion of remorse. There is no inclination to even want to, um, accept responsibility or acknowledge wrongdoing when you know that the consequences are likely to be overly harsh. Mm -hmm. I mean, exponentially so. Yeah, in many And cases. restorative justice, I think, um, serves that purpose as well. And, you know, in the cases I've handled that had the weightiest allegations, the weightiest sentences, nothing about that sentence felt like justice to me, to the victim, to the victim's families, or to anyone. It was, here's a layer of harm that we're going to add on top of the layer of harm and hurt that already occurred. And I think we can do better. I think we're more sophisticated than that. Yeah. And we should stop taking the easy way out. I agree. I agree. And again, I think about, well, I shouldn't say again, but I, I just think about people who are poor, and people who don't have access to um, resources um, versus people who have access to resources and who are not poor. Um, it seems that the poor folks always get the, the shorter end of the stick. They always get the harsher punishment. Um, they always get blamed for their circumstances without folks taking into account the, the whole spectrum or the, the whole system that helps create these poor and disadvantaged and marginalized communities. It's hard to separate that out. I mean, you know, I'm originally from Wisconsin and in Wisconsin, the 
racial makeup of our criminal legal system is disproportionately black by large measure, but it's not entirely black. Right. And Washington DC's criminal legal system is entirely black. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is this interesting thing about the demographics here. We don't have any poor white people in Washington DC. It mm -hmm. is a really interesting have affluent black people. We have poor black people, but there are no poor white people here. And mm -hmm. our entire jail, our entire <laughs> um, prison system, our, the vast majority of stops in DC are of poor black people. And they're almost entirely native Washingtonians, as opposed to the many, many people who have moved here from other parts of the country. And I think that says something about, again, how we've decided um, who's dangerous and who's not yeah. dangerous and yeah. the assignments that we've made to people based on their need um, and their circumstance and their whereabouts. Yeah. And their humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Outstanding. So last thing I'll ask you, and I ask most people that I have as guests, um, if you could summarize your journey in a statement or in a book title format or something, what would your, how would you capture your journey in a, in, in a catchphrase? I think my book title would be Rebellion. Mm. And the reason I choose that term is that I, I'm a believer in um, rethinking what rules are and what rules mean and what rules should be broken and why. And I have really spent my career trying to be as thoughtful as possible about what that means, about whether there is a way to design rules, either formally or culturally, mm -hmm. that lead us to better outcomes for people who look like me. And I'm just happy to be on that journey and to be among other people who consider themselves rebels in that way. Wow. Wow. I'm, move, I'm telling you, I'm trying not to cry just listening to you. You know, not tears of sadness, but just um, amazement. I'm amazed to be here talking with you. Um, when we were in Maryland talking, we didn't have a chance to go this deep. You know, so I'm really moved um, just hearing your conversation and knowing that you're out there fighting the good fight and that there's other people fighting the good fight. I got to wipe them. <laughs> got well, Likewise, them. I'm so impressed with everything you're doing and so appreciative. I mean, it's meaningful. And as I was saying at the top of the hour, I mean, you're reaching people that you probably don't even realize you're reaching and yeah. yeah, just please, please continue to do that. I will right on. And so um, I think with that, Patrice, yeah, my last thing I want to ask you, if folks want to know how to follow you or where to find you or to reach out to you, how can they do that? Please keep up with everything we're doing. You can visit dcjusticelab.org. You can follow us on social media at DC Justice Lab. And if you want to see the um, things that we're working on most immediately, please visit safeandfreedc.com. Right on. And with that, I think that's a wrap. Thank you so much. Thank you, too. It's been a pleasure. We have to keep the conversation going. We will. 
If you or someone you know would like to share your story on the Prison to Promise podcast, hit me up with a quick email at drcraigwaleed at gmail.com. That's D-R-C-R-A-I-G-W-A-L-E-E-D at gmail.com. Or you can find me on LinkedIn and Instagram under Dr. Craig Waleed. You can also hit me up on Twitter at Waleed Craig. I look forward to hearing from you. Peace.